And God, we, we submit to your plan. We want to be part of what you're doing through church. And we thank you, you've established a church in this neighborhood, in this school, for this time in the history of Denver, Colorado, so that, God, people could be transformed by your great love. Lord, none of us even have a glimpse of the tiniest bit of the tip of the iceberg of your love yet. But I pray that you would reveal it every moment in a deeper way to us. And I pray, God, that, that the words spoken today would be completely powerful and filled with the glory that, that you have, Jesus, because they're your words, they're not ours. And this is a, a very important piece of scripture I think that we're going to look at today and, and very powerful into our lives. Thank you for your servant, Paul, that, that was so faithful and so um, willing to be a man of God and to, to just lay himself out there as your servant. So we thank you for all these things. We worship you, Jesus, and we ask right now, you just teach us, you comfort those who are struggling you would eliminate all distractions, and our mind would be on you, Jesus, and what you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, today's message is called Life Without a Net. A couple weeks ago, we took the boys to the circus. You guys have been to the circus, you know? And they had the trapeze artists, and they had a net. So they were wusses. <laughs> but... There's the really crazy circus people that do it without a net. And in fact, I think about a year ago, there was a big accident and one of them and some people died because they, they didn't have a net and they fell uh, because of a, an accident or whatever and, and uh, died. And it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. But today's message is called Life Without a Net because that's how Paul lived his life. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21 through 24. This is the closing of this letter. We are wrapping it up today. And he says, But that you may also know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to all the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll stop right there. So what's going on is Paul is in Rome, and I think we have a map here of, of where these two locations are. I just wanted to kind of, do we? Oh, oh, there we go. Wow, that's better than my map. I have a map on my thing, but... This is way better. Okay, so Paul's in Rome, and he's in prison right now, and he's about to go to Caesar. He's about to, be, he's in, about to go on, uh, on trial, and he's about to give his defense for the gospel, and he's asked for them to pray for him. So he's there in Rome, okay? Ephesus is where this letter B is, over here on the uh, western coast of Turkey. And so this journey from Rome, it, this is if he was able to take a boat right there. If he had to walk, he would have to walk all the way around. And so it's, uh, it would be 238 hours of walking. I, I Google mapped it, so I know. I, I did the walking directions too, not even by car. If you wanted to walk, this and Tychicus, of course, would have had to walk. And so it's 1,456 miles. That's like from here to LA and then back to Salt Lake City. That's how far he'd have to walk. So this is no little thing. This is no simple thing. Um, and Paul, 
Again, he is in prison. He's an ambassador in chains for the Lord. And he's going he's gonna to send Tychicus on this huge journey. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But what Paul is saying in this part of the letter is he's saying, I don't want you to be bummed out for me. You know, he just explained to him how he was in prison. Okay, and he says, I'm in, I'm in chains. I'm an ambassador for the Lord, but I don't want you to feel sorry for me. So because I care more about you than me, I'm going to send you one of my closest friends and brothers to encourage you and to comfort you. Isn't it humbling to receive a gift, especially a gift that costs a lot? I, I'm sure you can think back in your mind. Maybe someone gave you something really special. I remember last year, someone gave us tires for our truck, and we had really bald tires, and it was extremely humbling to take that gift and, and someone say, here's this, and we saw the amount on there, and it's like $800, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, that's like a, an amount of excess money that I never see. And I was so humbled that, that someone would give something so valuable to me. And uh, we, we both were, my wife and I know, and we were just like, just floored. And so imagine the church of Ephesus. They received this letter, the whole letter of Ephesians from Paul, which is just like a, a, just a treasure of words and a treasure of an encouragement and theological gold. And we're just, it's so amazing. And not only that, but Paul sends him basically his only friend that he has, and he's in prison. He's, he's there chained up with nobody really to talk to. I don't know if that, I mean, he may have had some other people, but Tychicus was his friend. It's crazy that he cared so much for them. And he does that because he's saying, you can't be as effective as you could for Jesus if you're constantly worried about me. Paul is so concerned about the gospel going forth. He's so concerned about them being effective for Jesus that he's willing to send his comfort to them. You know, that's not me a lot of times in my life. I love, I love when people feel sorry for me. I like the feeling when people say, it's really not fair what you're going through. I like that feeling because I, I desire the comforts of the flesh so often. I just want things to get a little bit easier. And if they can't be easier for me, I at least want people to notice how much I'm suffering. But the Holy Spirit, that's not how he works. The Holy Spirit is always in a ministry to bring attention to Jesus. In John chapter 15, verse 26, we're going to spend a lot of time in John 15 today. You may want to just put your finger there because we're going to be there a few times today. But he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who precedes the Father, he will testify of me, Jesus said. So the Holy Spirit is not there to have a Holy Spirit party. The Holy Spirit is there to have a Jesus party. The Holy Spirit always draws the attention away from him. And that's why we have to be so careful with these churches that have aberrant doctrines where they're all about the Holy Spirit and seeing the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is wrong or it's wrong to talk about the Holy Spirit. He's a very active and present part in the New Testament. And there's very correct doctrine that has to do with him. But when it's like when, when, when the focus is on the Holy Spirit and not on Jesus, we have to wonder, we have to question is this really the spirit that's sourcing this event or this discussion? Because it says in the Bible, the spirit will always be drawing and shifting the attention back to Jesus. 
back to Jesus. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's taking that and he's, he's saying, don't worry about me. I, I struggle with that. Everyone struggles with that. But Paul, he's great. Paul wants the church in Ephesus uh, to clearly understand that he is not disappointed in his situation. He's not disappointed. In fact, he's thriving. God is with him and that is all he needs. He's teaching a very costly lesson to his church family, isn't he? Because it's so easy for him, it would have been so easy for him to just say, I, I really need Tychicus here. I need him. We'll talk about that in just a minute too. But he's teaching them a very costly lesson that God is with him and God is all he needs. He's experiencing peace and love with faith, as he said here. Peace is given to him and love with faith. And he's experiencing the realities of the grace of God. He's being supplied a supernatural power, a supernatural supply that's invisible and mysterious, but he's getting the supply by simply abiding with Jesus. He literally can do nothing else. He's in prison. He's in chains. And so he's just abiding in Christ, and he's getting that grace. He's receiving it. And so Paul becomes their example to get everything they need from the Father through Jesus Christ. And this is the whole point of the letter of Ephesians. So we're kind of wrapping up the whole point, the whole letter. This is an illustration of the mystery of the gospel that was sp spoken of so many times. And this is the clearest lesson that I've seen in my life even of the living power of God working in this world. And what is it? When, an, when I observe someone suffering and still have a living fountain of life flowing out of their soul. When suffering does not deter a servant. Again, Paul is the real deal. He doesn't simply write a letter of a bunch of things to do and trivia to know. Do you know all your parts of the armor? Well, it's in, the, it's in this letter. You better know it, but that's not the way he wrote it. He actually lives the realities of this letter. He actually is receiving a vast amount of spiritual riches and resources on a daily basis to live on and draw upon. And him sending Tychicus to the, to the church in Ephesus is to me an awesome picture of that. It's called living by grace or growing in grace. It's feeding on and drawing upon the very life of Jesus Christ. And Paul is nearing the end of his life. In just a little while, he's going to write the book of 2 Timothy. Another letter to his little protege, Timothy, or big, I don't know if Timothy was big or small, but he was his protege, his pastor that he had developed, and he was writing to him, and he would say at the end of that book, which is very close to the end of Paul's life, Paul mentions that he sent Tychicus away to Ephesus and alludes that to how hard that was for him. And he says he was lonely after that, that he missed his friend but I also don't think he regretted it. Because anything we sacrifice for the Lord, the Lord is going to reward us ten times that. And he, Jesus says that in this life. And in Proverbs 18, it says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So even though Paul gave up his friend, Tychicus, and sent him with this letter in hand on that journey to Ephesus, and he didn't know if he would even get there. He could have been mauled by bears on the way. 
he didn't even know, but he was willing to be obedient to Jesus because he had a friend that was still with him. And this isn't like my, my son who has imaginary friends sometimes. This is a real friend. And yes, he may be invisible like an imaginary friend, but Jesus is a real friend. He is that man. And the grace of God provides all that his children need. And the greater the need, the more grace will be poured out to meet that need. And Paul needed a friend. He shows us that at the end of 2 Timothy. And Jesus was the friend that he needed. Sometimes we live our life based on what we think we need, don't we? I really need friends. I never get to hang out with the, the guys anymore or the girls anymore. I never get my guy time or, or companionship. Man, I'm just not complete until I have a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe it's a job. I'm just not complete. I need a job. I need to pass this class. I need the Broncos to win. We have a lot of things that we think we need. But Paul was willing to give up something so dear to him for some other people. He wasn't, he wasn't even worried that he would be provided for because, because he just left that in the hand of his father, who he knew loved him. He was others-focused. Paul is so trusting in God's provision for him that he blindly jumps when Jesus says, jump. He lives life without a net. He just goes for it. What a rich and deep and glorious and powerful life that Paul lived and exemplifies for us. He was victorious in ways that we can hardly even comprehend. He was completely sold out to Jesus. He was like a replica of Jesus living on this world. Just like he said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But how did he get that way is the question for us today. How did he get that way? How did he become so skilled at accessing all of God's power and grace? Did he go to Jedi training camp of the apostles? Is that what those three years in Arabia were about? I don't know. How did he, how can I possibly live my life with the same reckless abandon for God that he did? Well, I believe he tells us in the last verse of this book how, how it happens. How he became Paul the Apostle. And how we can become who God wants us to be. It says in the last verse of this book, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Grace is what it's all about. Or as our ladies at the retreat would say, it's all about that grace. They did, a, they did the skit up at the retreat, and they, they, they did me proud because they, they had like 60 seconds to do this skit, and, and their motto was, it's all about that grace. And they had this, what was, what was uh, she was the 4G girl. God's glorious, glamorous grace was the superhero girl that they made up. And his, his, his superpowers were faith and humility, humility and faith. And his only weakness was self-sufficiency. And I was like, yes, that's such an awesome superhero. They did me proud as a pastor who was always teaching about grace. So I was really proud about that. 
But Paul seems to always be talking about this grace. He, he closes most of his letters drawing attention back to grace, doesn't he? He's always, grace be with you. And at the beginning of his letters, he's always, grace and peace be to you. He's always, it seems to be bringing the attention back to that grace. And of course, God's grace is not just the forgiveness of sins. But yet, when you say grace, that's what most people think of. They oh yeah, I've, I've received grace. He forgave me of all the horrible things I've done in my life, and I'm not doing those things anymore, but, but he forgave me. It's, but it's not just help when we fall. That's just the tip of the iceberg of grace. But rather, it's a supernatural gifting of God to actually live a godly life to actually be spiritual, to actually be Christ-like in this world. That's the bottom part of the iceberg. That's the, the power that's given to us. And Paul teaches us that the grace that he's talking about will be with all those who love Jesus Christ in sincerity. In sincerity. Grace does not come to those who want to try to impress God. Grace does not come to those who keep all the rules. Grace does not come to those who are just trying out this Christian thing or who are on the fence about Jesus. Those who come to church as a social club, they have no idea of the real power of God's grace. They may know that tip of the iceberg. They may be forgiven. But the deep part, the glorious part of his grace, they're not living in when it's just a club, when it's just a thing that they do. Those who are just waiting for God to impress them or for the pastor to entertain them, they won't see the wonders of God at work in their life. Rather, Paul says, it's a, if there's a real, genuine, simple love for God, that's what grace comes to. That's what God's after. You don't need to be the best with doctrine. You don't need to be the smartest guy in the room, which I'm really thankful for, for all of us. You don't need to be able to quote every verse in the Bible. You just need to love Jesus sincerely. That's how God says success will come into your life. And let me illustrate it this way, because it's fresh in my brain with the whole marriage yesterday. Marriage is about love, right? That's the first word that comes here. Well, maybe the first word is fighting in your mind, but most people, it's love. You know, well, especially at the beginning. You know, everyone knows why a newlywed couple smiles, right? But if a couple who's been married 10 years smiles, everyone's like, what's going on? It's kind of weird. But marriage should be about love, not trivia. No one is succeeding in marriage by answering trivia questions about their spouse. Well, how many times did they brush their teeth this morning? That doesn't lead to a successful marriage. Love is not about doctrine. You don't have to know everything about the truths of your spouse. You don't have to know everything about them to have love. It's not about how great you are. Your marriage isn't successful because you're awesome. That's not what makes a successful marriage either. Or what you know about the institution itself. 
Well, I know a lot about marriage. I defend marriage. I stand upon the principles of marriage. Yeah, but you suck at marriage. It doesn't matter how much you know about marriage. It doesn't matter how much you know about your wife. It doesn't matter how much trivia you know. It's about a person and a heart that cares about that person. And it leads us to a very important question. How do we love Jesus? I have no doubt after the wedding I was at yesterday that Martin, my friend, loves his wife, Dora. He sent gifts to her before the ceremony. Like every hour on the, on the hour, he would have a handwritten letter with a gift, like diamond earrings and all this crazy stuff. And it just got better and better and better. And he was fantastic. I know all the guys are getting elbows in their, in their sides right now because the women are like, what? But it was very romantic. And he cared about her. He was gentle with her. He was kind and compassionate. He, he had, his heart was in it. And I know the background, I know, the, I know what they've been through, and I know how there's depth to their relationship, there's purity to their relationship, and it just makes me so happy. Just made me so happy to just be able to stand before everyone and watch these two lives become one and their hearts just join together the way it's supposed to be. There was love. And so we transfer that question and I told, well, I told, it's interesting because I was telling all the people and I was teaching them about marriage a little bit. And I said, every marriage, whether you want it to be or not, is a picture of God's love. And I'm sure some people are like, well, I don't even believe in God, but you got married, which is picturing God's love. And they're like, oh, hmph. well, it, it is. And we were talking about how just the fact that two hearts are becoming one is a huge picture of God's love. So the question that's before us is how do we love Jesus? So turn with me to the book of John, chapter 14, and we'll start when verse 15, and we'll see what it says to us. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. So that's what Jesus says. The way to love Jesus is to keep his commands. Pretty simple, right? Let's dig into it. Jesus asks us to trust him. Not what other people say his commandments are, but what he says. So I don't know what first flashes in your brain when I say, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. But what flashes in a lot of people's brains is the Ten Commandments, right? Which if you kept the Ten Commandments, would that show that you love Jesus? Yeah, it would show. But who can keep those Ten Commandments. Nobody can. So Jesus is going to show us a better way. And he's going to show us how we can fulfill those Ten Commandments while still growing in a loving relationship with him, still able to love him today. So what I'm going to teach you today is how you can love Jesus today even if you're not keeping the Ten Commandments. It's, it's real. It can happen. It's part of the new covenant. So what are his commandments? Well, let's stay in John, but let's go to chapter 15. 
And let's kind of look at what these, what these commandments are. Let's go through John 15 and see what, how Jesus instructs us. If he says in John 14, if you love me, keep my commands, well, John 15 is going to show us how. And we'll start, eh, let's, let's go to verse 4 in John 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So here's our first command that Jesus gives us in John 15. Abide in me. Abide means remain, hang out, stay close to, stay close to me. But what about the Ten Commandments? Can you just put that on the shelf for a minute? Take those Ten Commandments and put them over here and just abide with me. There's this really great book I have not read. I have to confess, I haven't read it, but I love the title more than anything. It says, Men Are Like Waffles and Women Are Like Spaghetti. That's the name of the book. It's fantastic. And it talks about the emotional way that men and women are different in dealing with things. Men are like waffles. Everything has this little box, and we put our syrup in this box and our syrup in this box, and then we separate all our life's issues into all these different problems, and we're fine doing that, okay? Whereas women are spaghetti, and each problem is intertwined with everything, and they're mad at you because this happened over here, and you're like, what? I don't understand. And that's how marriage works. So you love each other. But where was I going with that? Remain. Okay, so Jesus saying, I know that life can get sticky and it can be trouble, but the Ten Commandments, let's, let's just try, ladies, to put it on the shelf, in a, in a box. Just make a side of your plate, move the spaghetti over here, and put it right here, the Ten Commandments. And over here, with what we're going to focus on, just say, abiding, remaining with Jesus, just staying with him. But I don't feel like staying with him. I don't care. Jesus commands us, stay with him, abide with him. So do that, number one. Stay with him. Hang out with him. Then we get to verse 7. And in verse 7 it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So the first command was abide in me. The second command is if you abide in me, my words, let my words abide in you. Let my words abide in you and you in them. It means hang out with me, spend time with me, and then read the Bible. That's my command to you. Jesus' commands. These are his commands. What he's telling us his commands are. Again, the Ten Commandments, they're great, they're lovely, they're powerful, they're wonderful, but they're on the shelf. They're way over here. Don't think about them. I know you're, you're like, wait, his commands, but no, just put them over there. And over here, abide in me and read my word. And then what does he say in verse 9? As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Okay, command number one, hang out with me. Command number two, hang out in my word. Command number three, abide in my love. Just remember our love. Remember this is about a marriage and a relationship, not a trivia contest, not a Bible memorization contest, and definitely not a how good can you do at keeping the Ten Commandments contest. That is not what the Christian life is about, and it's not what Jesus commands us to do. Jesus commands us to remember that he loves us. If that means you need to watch a movie about Jesus dying on the cross every day to remind you, then do it. If that means you need to fall on your face and cry to remember how much he loves you, then do it. But remember, and a great way to do that is what? Communion. Jesus says, as much as you can, as much as you want to, Take this communion and remember, 
Remember, that's my command, to remember it, to abide in my love. Abide in my love. Then we get to verse 12. And he says, this is my commandment. Jesus is being so clear on what his commandment is. He's saying, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So, abide with me, then read the Bible, then remember how much I love you all the time, and then love one another. Love one another. But the Ten Commandments, they give me so just, just put them over there. Yes, they can give you a structure for how to love people, but, but I just want you to just love them from your heart. Just love them from your heart. That's my command. Then we get to verse 17. And he says, these things I command you that you love one another. Love one another, he says again. Earlier, when Jesus was being asked by a lawyer as to the greatest commandment, Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and the second is like it, that you should love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So he says, all those ten commandments that we put on the shelf, guess what? If you just love God and you love others, all those ten commandments you will just do. You'll just do it. You're not going to steal from people. You're not going to go sleep with someone's wife. You're not going to lie. You're not going to cheat, steal, and curse, and hang out with people who do. Whatever, how that, however that phrase goes. You will naturally, if you love God and love others, you will naturally fulfill the Ten Commandments in your life. And it always flows like that. Like what we just read in John 15. Just think about that flow. It starts with hanging out with Jesus, and it ends with a heart that loves God and loves others. That's how growth happens. That's how our discipleship happens. I know um, one of the guys that I've been discipling with, you know, at the very beginning, he had all kinds of issues, and there was things going on in his life. And I was like, hey, bro, let's just hang out, and let's just start looking at, at the at studying the Bible. Let's just start hanging out with Jesus. And we did. And it's really interesting because after weeks and weeks and time, his life today looks completely different than the life that started. And guess what? I never told him to change. Not one time did I tell him, stop doing this, start doing that. Because that's not how growth happens. That's not how the new covenant works. We started hanging out with Jesus, then we started being in his word, and then love grew out of him. And now we look at his life, and it lines up with how, what the Lord wants from him. And we're seeing this growth, and we're not all there. My life isn't completely there yet, but we're on that path that love is being grown in our life. So back in John 14, back up just on the left side of your page there, on verse 14, 23, Jesus said, uh, he answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So what happens when you love Jesus? He comes and he makes his home with you. What you could describe as a close family relationship. What is the greatest thing in anyone's life? And most of the time they'll tell you, my family. My family is all, I'm all about my family. I'm lost without my family. I love my family. Well, God says, that's what you get when you love me. And it, it's reciprocated. He loves us first. Then we respond and love him back. Then we get even more access to his love 
and we get the deeper realities and consequences of his love and favor in our life. When I was growing up, my, my stepdad said, you'll always have a home as long as I'm around. It means if he meant to, if I went and I just messed up my whole life and I was homeless, I could always come back and live with him. No matter where I was, he would always provide for me. And that's what we get in that family relationship with God, is that when we love Jesus, you get a family that never goes away and never betrays you, never sends you out on your own, kicks you, drops you off of college, and leaves you for dead. That's not how it works in God's family. And then in Proverbs 8.17, I'll read this to you. He says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. God is an equal opportunity lover. And he's worth loving. He's worth it. When you love him, you get grace and peace. But most of all, you get his love and himself, his very heart. He gives himself completely and without reservation to him who loves him and seeks him. And, and what's better than the very source of all that is good? If God created everything, and that by the time he was done creating everything, he said it's good, he's pretty good. And he's the source of all the stuff that's good that we have in life. And he gives himself freely and completely to us when we love him. But I want us to take a couple minutes here, and I want us to contrast loving God with the other side, not loving God. Who would decide they don't want to love him? Well, actually, lots of people do. I know a bunch. I'm sure you do too. But let's contrast what they get. Because what we get when we love God is grace and peace and all of him. But when they decide not to love God, what do they get? And there's actually a verse, 1 Corinthians 16.22. And it's very interesting because he says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ... Let him be anathema. Ooh, that's a big Greek word, but it sounds scary. Anathema! Maybe you've heard preachers say that word. So we define that word, of course. It means a curse. In context, it means damned to the lowest hell. That's what anathema means. And I don't think Paul is running around like a, uh, like a fiery preacher saying, damn you to the lowest hell. That's not what he's doing. He is describing the life, the natural life of someone who doesn't love God. The natural end of a life of someone that does not love Jesus. It's just like the natural end of someone who tries to breathe in outer space. It's not thriving, that's for sure. There's nothing there. It's just death. You just fade and die. But even more, not loving Jesus brings a curse, a curse into your own life. So if you decide, I don't want to love Jesus, I want to love something else, someone else, I got some other plan, I don't want to love him, it will bring a curse into your life. But the problem is, I've been through days where I did not love Jesus. Have you? I have. I know we all have. So what happens then? What happens to all that? Did I bring a curse upon myself? And I, am, I, am I now living with a curse? 
There's been times in my life, even in my day, days recently, probably every day, where my heart does not love Jesus as much as I should. Does anyone else struggle with that? Does anyone else feel like I could love Jesus so much more and I'm condemned and I'm convicted by not? In fact, I feel like I'm cursed. I feel the reality of this verse that anytime I'm not just totally in love with Jesus, I feel like my soul is suffocating, that I'm dying somewhat. I feel it. I feel the reality of it. I want to read to you a gloriously freeing verse. This is just a verse that will bring you to tears when you feel that way. It's in Galatians 3.13. And it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So we get this verse written to us that brings such amazing freedom. We are so free with Jesus. We don't have to try to redeem ourselves from the curse and the anathema of our own lives when we hated God, when we hate Jesus, when we go through times in our life where we're not loving him all fully. We have been redeemed. We have been freed. We don't, we're not just, uh, I'm sorry, we are just free because he became the curse for us, we are just free to grow in love with him. We are free to just grow in love with him. His love and his grace are so powerful and amazing that they redeem us from the curse. And when did that happen? Way back at the cross. That's when he redeemed us from the curse. That's when he became that curse for us. So that feeling that we feel when we feel like we're disappointing God and we feel like we're not loving him enough, guess what? It's a lie. It is not the truth. Because yes, you may be struggling, but the curse is not upon you. The curse is not upon you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he has taken the curse away from you. The curse that all unbelievers have. The curse that everyone who's against God has. It is not on you and it never will be on you ever again. Christ has redeemed us from the curse. We don't have to live in fear anymore about proving yourself to him. We just abide with him. We just stay with him in humility and faith. And he causes us to grow in true love for God. That's how this works. It's the ability to love Jesus daily without having condemnation, without a, you should love me more, you should do this to love. We're just free. We can just say, I, I, I just want to grow in love with you. And so we keep his commands then. If we love him, we keep his commands. We hang out with him, we read the word, and we love. That's it. That's how simple this is. It's amazing. See, keeping God's commandments is right and it's good. But we either attempt to keep them, to keep them out of our own flesh and efforts, and we live in constant fear of being cursed when we fail, or we just love Jesus with all our hearts and then do whatever we want to do. That's the truth. That's the freedom of the gospel. Trusting in the Spirit to work out all our actions to line up with God's commands that we placed over here on this shelf. Such freedom we have, people. Such freedom, such joy. I want to read to you a poem. 
This is walking in the Spirit. This is just loving God. It's all we have to focus on. It's all we have. It's what Paul says. Just love God and grace will be on you. So I'm going to read you this poem. It was written in 15, the, the mid-1500s, about 1550, okay, by Francis Xavier. It was translated to English by Edward Caswell in the mid-1800s. Okay, so the language is a bit dated, but I just want to read it to you just so you have some historical context of our conversation of loving God. It says, My God, I love thee, not because I hope for heaven thereby, nor yet because who love thee are, who not love thee are lost eternally. So basically he's saying, I love you not because I get to go to heaven or because those who don't love you go to hell. You, oh my Jesus, you did me upon the cross embrace. He's saying, you took me, you gave me a hug when you were on the cross. For you did bear the nails and spear and manifold disgrace and griefs and torments numberless and sweat of agony. Yes, death itself and all for me, who was your enemy. Then why, O blessed Jesus Christ, should I not love thee well? Not for the sake of winning heaven, nor escaping hell. Not from the hope of gaining anything. Not for seeking a reward, but as thyself has loved me, O ever-loving Lord, so I will love thee, dearest Lord. And in thy praise will sing, solely because thou art my God and my most loving King. He's saying, I'm going to love you, God, just because you love me. That's the reason. And even if you send me to hell, I'm still going to love you. That's basically the point he's saying. Heaven, basically, is the side effect of a love with Christ. I'm sure there have been romantic love stories of a man giving his life for the woman that he loved. And why would they do that? You don't even get to spend the rest of your life with your wife. Why would you give your life for? And the only answer that anyone can come up with is love. Love is the only thing that would motivate someone to give their life for someone else. So the question right now is, do you love him? Do you love Jesus? In 1 John 4.19, he says, we love him because he first loved us. Do you love him in res- uh, uh, because you're trying to impress him? Or do you love him in response to what he has done? How he has loved you? If you're going after him in your efforts, it's not the kind of love that God's looking for. He has already loved you. Don't ignore that. Imagine a bride who, who won't marry her groom because she wants to prove herself to him over and over again. She feels the need to constantly show that she is worthy of his love and affection. She's thinking to herself, she's thinking about herself, and she's not thinking about the love that's being given to her and offered to her. She's just thinking about herself. And he, her husband, her groom, just wants her to shut up and snuggle up. He just wants her to come and receive my love. Is that what you're doing? Is that what I'm doing? Am I trying to get God to love me? 
Well, as the Spirit searches our hearts right now, and as the Spirit is maybe convicting you, maybe encouraging you, showing you that, yes, you just love me because I love you, or he's convicting you, yes, you love me, but you're just trying to prove to me that you love me. Stop it. Shut up and snuggle up. Hashtag that. So how, then, do we love him more? And so turn to the book of Luke, verse 7. This is, you can write in your Bible, I give you permission, how to love him more. How to love him more. Would you all agree we need to love Jesus more? Amen. I need to love Jesus more. This story is how to love him more. I wrote that on top of my Bible. That's what it is. Then uh, chapter 7, verse 36 is where it starts. 36 through 50. It's the second half of, of chapter 7. There. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. So let me paint this picture a little bit for you. Jesus is there. And a Pharisee says, hey, why don't you come eat with me? Now, a Pharisee had a reputation amongst all the people as they were the ones that loved God the most. Okay? They were like the Mother Teresas of the day and maybe the Pope or whoever is in our mind just as someone who loves God the most. That was them. They tithed like crazy. They memorized the Torah. They rocked their phylacteries like it was 950 B.C. Hashtag Orthodox Jewish joke. They were the definition of the people who love God the most, all right? But verse 37, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. And we'll stop right there. That word, there's so much packed into that word sinner. There was shame, failure, worthlessness, pain, mistakes, rebellions, blatant, horrible, adulterous sin packed into that word, and everybody knew it. But her reputation was only half as bad as what her conscience was screaming at her day after day, that I am not right. I am not, I do not have a right standing with God. But something was moving in her, and what that was, we'll see. But we'll see the Spirit was causing her to love. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with, her, with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil oil. Now that's love. Okay, if Jesus was standing, she, it says, was behind him. She wouldn't even approach him from the, from the front. She like came up behind him and, and just anointed his feet on her hands and knees and weeping, cleaning his feet with her tears and with this oil. She knew that she had to go into the Pharisee's house to do this. Who, where, that's like the worst place to go for her. 
but she didn't care. She was so humbled. She was so humiliated. And most of all, she, she wanted to love Jesus. Okay? So verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, he would know uh, who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. All true statements. Everything said in those, it's all true. Every single sentence. Verse 40, And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I just can't keep this inside, Jesus is saying, because I see something so wrong right now. You think you love me, and you don't, is what he's going to get to. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain, Jesus begins to tell him this little story. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing to, of which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, of which of them will love him more? Jesus does this question and is so brilliant it's so wonderful, and it's getting to what Jesus has at the heart of this issue, what Jesus wants to talk to Simon about, Simon the Pharisee. Jesus doesn't want to talk to him about debts. He doesn't want to talk to him about who had more debt. He wants to ask him, who loves more? Who loves more? And so Simon said, well, I suppose the one who forgave more, who he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Not your works, not your tears, not your washing me, but your faith has saved me. Go in peace. Does your, has your relationship with God been become dry? Have you, has it just been going through a routine for you? Has it become some sort of burden or responsibility to abide with Jesus and to read your Bible? How can I love him more? If it has, if it's become a burden and you're sensing in your heart, man, I just, I don't feel the love. I don't, I don't have this deep-rooted love of the scriptures and of my Jesus. How do we change that? We gotta be this woman. We gotta do what she did. 
we got to remember how much you have been forgiven. See, I don't think she was forgiven of more things than the Pharisee was. I think there's a reason why the Pharisee knew she was such a sinner, because he was just, he was partaking. That's what I think. Furthermore, all of us are sinners, and he was a sinner. So I don't think he couldn't love Jesus because he wasn't forgiven of as much. I think he was too prideful to admit his need to be forgiven. I think he was too prideful to get down and, and kiss Jesus. Where Psalm 1, I believe, says, kiss the son lest he be angry. And this Pharisee should have known this was the son of God. He should have given him a kiss. But it's humbling. It's humiliating. He's considered Jesus lower than him. And so he didn't get to experience the love and joy and peace and forgiveness that Jesus was able to freely bless this woman with. It was his choice to not experience the love. It was his choice. And each one of us have a choice to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. To search our hearts and see if there's any wicked way in us. And then to just fall upon Jesus, kiss him, love him, cherish him, cherish your time in the word with him. Guys, this is the only time, this life on the earth is the only time where you get that opportunity to have a relationship with him based on the word of God. When we get to heaven, guess what? The Bible's not going to be there. Why? Because we'll be there with Jesus. It'll be great, it'll be awesome, but it's not going to be what it, could, what it is today. It'll be different. Right now, we have a chance to show him love. You have an opportunity to grow in love every day. And how does it happen? It's counterintuitive. You humble yourself and you weep over your sin. You remember his forgiveness. Paul ends the book of Ephesians by drawing our attention to the living, to living by grace. He demonstrates it himself, living by grace, by sending his safety net, Tychicus, to the people of Ephesus. And then he shares with them the way to get the grace that he lives by through a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's all stand up. I know it was a long study today, but I really believed it was a word for, for us in here today of freedom to love Jesus. Would you come up and, and close us in a song? And as Nathan and Julia are coming up, let's all bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. There is truly... Um, been a block sometimes in my life because I wouldn't humble myself and I wouldn't crawl up to your feet and weep before you and hold you and kiss you and treasure you as my Savior and my God, my friend and my love, everything. And when I choose to be prideful and I choose to distance myself from you, God, I'm just choosing a life of sorrow. And I'm choosing to be Simon and I'm choosing to stand there and, and not understand you and not understand your will and not understand your power and I don't want to live that life. I just want to know your love and I want to love you. And as Paul closes this message and he says, grace will be upon all who love Jesus Christ sincerely. 
God, I, I want to be sincere in my heart that I need you to be saved by you on a daily basis. I know I've been forgiven, but Lord, I hate the sin that dwells in my heart. I hate my flesh. And Jesus, I love you. I hate every distraction that keeps me away from you. But Father, I love you. And if you are here today and, and you have never been even forgiven, you've never even understood that God would take away your sin, pray this prayer and say, Jesus, I accept that you were my sacrifice on the cross. And God, that you thought of me and you paid specifically for all the sin that I have committed. And that you offer me now complete forgiveness. And I will accept that. And you will give me the authority to be a child of God. And now given that authority, I will now follow you. And I will love you as your child. And I will enter your presence as your child. And I will continue to abide in you as your child. And as I'm obedient to your commands to abide in you, to abide in your word, that you will create in me the love for God and for others that will enable me to keep the Ten Commandments. Lord, we, we just thank you so much for dying on the cross for us and loving us with all that, you've, that you have, for giving yourself completely, for holding nothing back. Jesus, you gave us everything. You poured yourself out till it was empty. You drank the cup of God's wrath till it was empty. You gave everything. It's complete. We thank you for that. And God, we worship you now in this song.